At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, is this, or sorry, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came, and sorry, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there on a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. The deal fell through. Have you ever heard those words? I was catching up with a friend last week, and this friend uh, was working long 60 to 80 hour weeks uh, on a mergers and acquisitions team. And uh, this friend was part of the grinding team behind the scenes, uh, doing all the dirty work and hard work to make this deal happen and just working into the 11th hour. And then just one fell swoop, simple words from top leadership. The deal fell through, just stop. Have you ever felt that moment where your expectations weren't met? Um, maybe you're not working for mergers and acquisitions firm, but certainly we have felt the pain of unmet expectations. And more specifically, working so hard, making so much effort towards a certain goal, a certain dream, a desire, and then all of a sudden, just in one fell swoop for that to be just undercut. Uh, even at home, I was thinking an example that came to mind. I remember when my wife, Linda, was uh, beginning to teach our kids to put away their own laundry. And my wife folded up their cute little clothes, all perfectly in a nice little stack. Um, but she failed to tell them what to do with the clothes uh, after they were handed that nice folded stack of clean clothes. And so they took it to the bedroom and just threw it onto the bed. <laughs> and it became all unfolded. And then when they began to stuff it into their drawers, I became all wrinkled. And, and so even there, as, as a mother, uh, it was so frustrating. Unmet expectations. All that hard work on her end. Nice, clean, stacked clothes. And then all of a sudden, all that put to waste and clothes wrinkled again. Now, how we deal with unmet expectations, uh, I think it really depends on your time frame of perspective. And what I mean by that is, uh, 
Are you someone who naturally just looks and thinks very short-term, very immediate short-term? Or are you someone who naturally, or, or at least you try to uh, have a more longer-term perspective? Because the longer-term perspective you have, then when you have unmet expectations in the moment, uh, it's a bit easier to deal with those because you're still thinking the long game and you're hoping uh, much more down the road. And of course, as Christ followers, we're not meant to just have a long-term perspective, but, but Christ followers have the truest long-term perspective, which is an eternal perspective. Now, um, if you'll just think with me here, oftentimes perspective, and whether you want short-term perspective or you're willing to mature a bit and try to have some more long-term perspective, or as a Christ follower to have eternal perspective, it's very much um, related to and connected to our desire for pleasure. If you have a short-term perspective, then most often it's because you want immediate pleasure. You want to be gratified as quickly as possible in the moment. But if you are willing to uh, just delay gratification, to delay pleasure, that usually equates to a longer-term perspective. And for Christ followers, where we are seeking to have an eternal perspective, our faith, our belief is that uh, our deepest longings are going to be satisfied perfectly in eternity. And so it, it's waiting patiently on God to bring all history and our life stories to subsume it with his wonderful gospel redemptive story and we'll experience the greatest pleasure in eternity now i start off this way because i think in today's passage uh it's about those kind of perspectives we're going to see three characters we're going to see herod the king john the baptist and jesus and they all have different perspectives on unmet expectations or, or just how they approach expectations in their life. And so I hope um, that as we work through this passage, that there'll be something stirring in your heart that wants to talk to God in a manner similar to this prayer. Uh, Lord, I want to be pleased by and please you supremely. Meaning, First, I want to be satisfied. I want to be supremely satisfied and made happy by you in this life. Not material things, not people and, and other things, but I want to be supremely satisfied by you, pleased by you. And then in turn, as I experience you in my life, that that would turn into, that would turn around and I would want to live a life to please you because you have just so deeply satisfied me. And so I want to ask of the passage, uh, what does Matthew want us to learn from Herod, John the Baptist, and Jesus? And put differently, uh, another way to just approach the passage today is to ask, what controls your life? Um, usually when we think of our pleasures, there's things and people and whatnot that control our life. What we seek to be pleased by controls our life. And so what controls your life? So let's look to Herod first. What do we learn from Herod? And the first idea that I want you to see as a negative example for us today is that Herod lived to please 
himself. He lived self-centeredly to please himself. Now, more specifically, um, what we learn from Herod is that Herod lived to please himself. How? Because he was pleased by his own law. He made up his own law. He was a king, and so literally, in some sense, he could make up his own law. He could pass certain edicts and, and live by his own law. But it was beyond that, not just legally, but in his own heart, fundamentally, he lived as his own king, and he was pleased by his own law. Now, where do we see this? As we pick up in chapter 14, verse 1, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracle, miraculous powers are at work in him. Now what you need to understand here is Matthew first in the narrative. You know when you watch movies and then there's a flashback to the past to explain what's going on uh, in the present. And Matthew is doing something similar. And at that time, uh, Jesus was preaching, and that word fame, it's not necessarily a, a narcissistic word. It just means the teaching of Jesus. The, the words and sayings of Jesus was continuing to spread. And as he heard this, and in particular, what accompanied Jesus' ministry were, were miracles as well. And I want you to notice that Herod, how he responds to it, his conscience is pricked. In fact, he's getting spooked out. Because, as we'll see now, Matthew goes, he does a flashback in time, and the way Herod explains it, it's that he believes Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnated. Why? Because, as we pick, continue in verse 3, now this is the flashback, Herod had seized John in the past. He had exerted his authority, his power, and that word seized there carries that notion that I can just do whatever I want. I'm above the law, I am the law, and so I'm going to arrest this man at my whim. And he had a specific reason. John explains in verse 4, because John had been a thorn in his side, a moral thorn in his side, continuing to prick the conscience of Herod, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Who's her? Her was uh, Herod's sister-in-law. It was the wife of his living brother, as is explained by Matthew here, Philip, and he had lusted after her, and basically there was an affair, and there was adultery, and even though Herodias had left Philip, um, by law, by Moses' law, the Levitical law at the time that King Herod was supposed to be following as the king of the people of Israel, he was disobeying it. And so John, being a prophet, John the Baptist, he called out Herod and called, would not let him get away with this, especially as the king who's supposed to set the moral example for his people. You are disobeying God's law. And so I want you to see here that Herod, he was above even God's own law. He lived to please himself by making up his own laws and just having a conscience to do whatever he wanted, to take whatever woman he wanted and against God's law. Now, secondly then, what we need to learn from Herod is that he lived to please himself, specifically valuing people's affirmation over God's. And we see this drawn out. It's really interesting. Matthew, um, in all the Gospels, when you read them, you want to ask the question, why does the author 
spend X amount of time describing what's going on in certain kind of detail. And we see here that Matthew actually takes time to unpack uh, Herod a bit psychologically, to get into the motives of his heart. And he explains, picking up in verse 3, that Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias. You can only imagine if, you know, just on one hand, I get it. You know, you want to live a certain lifestyle. You want to make certain choices and not just to have a clear conscience about it. And you have this prophet publicly, you know, continuing. Uh, they didn't have Twitter back then. They didn't have social media. But he was broadcasting as loud as possible that the king and now the woman that he has taken are disobeying God's law. And so Herodias naturally was whispering, if not shouting at Herod and saying, take care of this. You're the king. Are you going to let this man show you down? Are you going to let this man embarrass you in public? Do you love me or do you love him? And so for the sake of Herodias, Herod makes up his own law, lives by his own law, seizes John, and puts him in prison. And again, what Matthew is drawing out here is that it's the law of God. It's not lawful for Herod to have her. It's the law of God versus Herod's own law. Now, uh, Matthew draws it out even more in verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, right? there was something so bothered. Herod was so bothered by John and he wished he could just take care of him and silence him by putting him to death. But look what's going on in Herod's heart. Herod's heart was a, a messy, confused hierarchy of, of fear and longing for affirmation. He feared the people. He feared the people. What was greater than even his love for his new mistress was a longing for affirmation from people. You see, fear of people and wanting their affirmation they're really two sides of the same coin. And so it's good to do a heart check here because just being human, I know all of us, all of us at some point in life have struggled with wanting to please a certain people. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe just it's yourself just wanting affirmation. But really on the other side, if you're fearing someone, it really means that you're longing for their affirmation. And so we see here, the way Herod lived by his own law was that he valued the people's affirmation even more than the woman that he loved. In his heart, there was a hierarchy of, of affections and where he wanted that affirmation from. And certainly, he loved what the people thought of him. He loved the polling numbers as a politician and, and just what people thought of him more than what he should have been reflecting on and meditating on. What does God think of me? Being controlled by the opinions of others and living for other people's approval will make you a lost person. The, um, an image that comes to mind is if you've ever played pinball and that pinball is just being bounced around every which way. It's so chaotic. It's so hard to control. If you're that pinball, then you're just being bounced around in life because you're being driven by your need to please people. But if you try to please everyone, 
then you'll never please really anyone. And most of all, if you're serious about faith and, and following uh, Christ, you'll most likely end up displeasing Him as well. If you try to please everyone, most likely you'll end up displeasing Christ. That's why Jesus in another place says, no one can serve two masters. Well, let's look to John the Baptist then. What we learn from John the Baptist is that God's pleasure over you is ample strength. More than enough strength. Abundant strength to endure. Here is John the Baptist, a martyr. He is about to become a martyr for Christ, for the kingdom. And what, just imagine yourself in that kind of situation where your faith is being tested. I imagine, this is just, you know, if you'll permit me some creative license. Imagine Herod had some back room, quiet, in the shadows, conversations with John the Baptist. Look, I can make your life easy. Just stop condemning me in public. Stop calling me out. And I'll let you go, and your life will be fine. And I can only imagine that John the Baptist would say something like, no, I must fear God more than you. I must love God because He has loved me. He is real. Even when we think of a few chapters prior, you know, John, he was human. And he had his his wondering, his wrestling. And so he sent his disciples to Jesus to confirm, are you really the one that I have been waiting for, that we have been looking for? Or is there another? And I imagine what Jesus spoke of John got back to John. Jesus elevating John uh, to the place saying he is the greatest in the kingdom. That there is no one greater than John in the kingdom. And so we know that how the narrative goes is that uh, John was beheaded because of just how it worked out. Again, Herod just being at the whim of his desires to please people, and he was easily pleased by sensual things. And so we see his uh, daughter-in-law, I guess now, um, being, you know, dancing and pleasing. And, and so he was willing, just his character was, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for you because you've, you've pleased me. Just such a shallow character in that way, and it just got him into trouble. So let me ask at this point, how is Christian suffering unique? We, we think of John, and we think of his wonderful testimony and example to us today, that in the face of even potential martyrdom, that he was able to continue to steadfastly just follow God and ultimately Christ, believing that his cousin Jesus is the Messiah to the very end. How is Christian suffering unique? Now, certainly Christians, where it starts first is it's inside. There's an internal tension because as you suffer, because you are so different from the world or the world's values, your workplace's values, your, your, your friend's values are so different from you, there's a tension because you know that the path that you're called to follow as a Christ follower is, is one direction. And the path of the masses and what's popular is another direction. And, 
and you're at odds. You feel torn between both. And on one hand, you'd like to just be like everyone else and just without any um, you know, second thought, just to enjoy life as everyone else does. And so there's an internal tension. Even as you are trying to pursue to become more Christ-like and, and you're dealing with, you look in the mirror and you see your own faults and weaknesses and, and, and you're wrestling with guilt and shame, that's an internal tension. And that's one type of Christian suffering. And certainly as you try to follow Christ, there will be social fallout. There will be friends and coworkers, even family, who marginalize you, who, who mock you, who uh, just ostracize you because you believe in what you do. And they think it's so ridiculous or passe. Another natural fallout, and I've just witnessed this with my own eyes of, of close friends, real vocational fallout. Being overlooked because you won't wave the same flag as your corporation does. And certainly, there's real mental and physical persecution. Christians being persecuted all over the world. But now, let me bring a little bit of a twist. And let me say that actually that's not, those four things that I just mentioned, they're not unique suffering to the Christian. Because you could be passionate about some other cause in life, some other mission that the majority are against. And you could be persecuted in similar ways. Okay? So this is not unique to the Christian. You could be a part, a follower of another religion. And if you're living in a place where that religion is not readily accepted, you could experience similar persecutions. Now, the thing about us as humans and the way God has created us, you just go back to that staircase of life. Even how we suffer, right? Athletes know this most concretely and readily, I think. Athletes are in touch with suffering well. Because if you're willing to suffer, if you're willing to feel the lactic acid and do the reps and get, you know, fight through the injuries and, and you come out stronger on the other side. And so generally speaking, the way our culture and our world tries to redeem suffering is to believe, and it works, it, it does work, that we become better people if we persevere through suffering and we come out on the other side. And, and that's just another way where each of us, how we try to tool suffering to make us better people, it's just another way we're all trying to get happier and higher up that staircase of life. But the truth is, when we stand, uh, we'll all face a final suffering of death. And even if you suffered well on earth, it'll all just be undercut from under you just in one fell swoop and as you stand before God no matter how well you suffered here on earth it will not give you right standing before God and so what is unique to Christian suffering is this last point in the red if you can see the slide Christian suffering even our suffering by faith is in union with Christ's righteous suffering because his suffering is the one suffering that God will vindicate in history. Out of every human being that walked this earth, his suffering is the one righteous, pure, true, sinless suffering on the cross for the sins of the world that God will acknowledge and say, I receive your suffering. I will redeem your suffering. And so what the Christ follower believes is that as Christ climbs back up that staircase to God, and He's the one person who can do it, 
That's where, for the Christian, we can have a real hope and comfort that as we abide in Christ, and even in our suffering, to say, Lord, this is so hard in my life right now, but I trust and I want to give it to you that you have a purpose for it, that you will even cause this to work for the good of those uh, who love you and are called according to your purpose. And even as you make me more and more Christ-like, it's when our suffering is in union with Christ's perfect suffering. Now, I, I unpack all this because you think of John the Baptist in prison. And if Jesus didn't finish his mission, even John the Baptist martyrdom would be for naught. It would be meaningless, as righteous of a man as he was during his lifetime on earth. You see, it's not enough just to have life-term, long-term, just for your life thinking. We need to think beyond this life, certainly not thinking like Herod, just short-term immediate pleasure and perspective. And so that's why we need to begin to also look to Jesus. And so what do we learn from Jesus? I love that Matthew includes this detail. And what we learn from him is that, at the least, I think we can say he was burdened. He was burdened when he heard the news of John the Baptist being martyred in his death. He was burdened to secure the Father and Spirit's pleasure over the saints. We see in verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, the the news of John being beheaded, being martyred, Jesus withdrew. We see in several places in the Gospels that Jesus was so tenderly human from needing to just have solitude. And uh, Mark 135, I love that verse. While it was still dark, Jesus went off to be alone. We see uh, as John or Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus, and he just sobs and weeps bitterly because one of his closest friends has died. We, we see the tender heart of Christ. And, and hearing this, not only a fellow servant for the kingdom and the one who prepared for Jesus' ministry to open up to the public, but we see, uh, we know that he was his flesh and blood as well. And so his very own cousin. And so all those layers of emotion and Jesus withdraws in a boat to a desolate place. You can only imagine what he was thinking, but again, Matthew doesn't spell out the specific details, but if you'll just allow me creative license, I I imagine he was just reaffirming for himself, crying out to his Father, Father in heaven, this is it. Like, it's your kingdom or nothing. And reaffirming, asking the Spirit for strength to continue resolutely on His path to Jerusalem. Because Jesus knowing that if He doesn't suffer righteously, if He doesn't take every humanity's place on the cross, and if He in His taking on humanity's sin and suffering righteously is not vindicated, then all suffering, especially His beloved cousin John the Baptist, martyrdom, would be meaningless. As we fast forward to Revelation, um, I so appreciate and I'm, I'm comforted actually by this detail 
that John the Apostle, different from John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, uh, God leaves us this through him, describing um, just the state of, you know, before the kingdom is inaugurated. And I'll just read this here from Revelation 17. And on her forehead, uh, meaning Babylon, who is uh, metaphorically representing uh, Satan and his kingdom and all, everything earthly, just trying to live for this earth, trying to just get up that staircase of life on your own. That, that's all wrapped up in, in that word and metaphor, Babylon. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. And this last detail is so important of Jesus. Not just anyone who suffered well, but specifically those who suffered by faith in Christ and believing that this world is just a passageway to the final, real, most real life in eternity. And so I think just first on a quick practical tangent, church, let us not forget the saints, the saints of old and all the martyrs who have shed their blood to, and God has used that as seeds to continue to spread his gospel and build his church. And, and I bet if we took the time to sort of, uh, you know, do a spiritual genealogy, if you will, you know, how did I come to faith? And we connect all the people who are in our lives at some point in your spiritual genealogy, your spiritual family tree, so to speak, there'll be someone who literally gave up their life, whose blood was spilled in the name of Christ because they were pleased by God and His love for them first in Christ and then wanting to live that resolute life. At some point, there'll be some connection. And you and I are here today because of the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs, those like John the Baptist. So let us not forget, and so in real time, we're all, the world is under pandemic, sure, and we're all suffering in new ways that we haven't before, but let us not also in the midst of the pandemic, remember constantly, in real time, somewhere in the world, there are brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted, and all the more than to wrestle with, Lord, by your grace, how can I that much more faithfully live out my testimony here where you have me? And so I hope that you'll pray with me. Lord, I want to be pleased by and please you supremely. I hope that your eyes and the eyes of your heart can continually look on Christ who keeps welcoming you, keeps encouraging you and, 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 and pulling you towards the most eternal perspective. Just take pause and perhaps in this life, if you're like me, I'm human and I have my weak moments where I'm just looking at right in front of me. And I just want to be pleased right now, immediate short term. Or perhaps like John the Baptist, as you're going through suffering in this life right now, let's not live as just other people who suffer well in this life and thinking it's just about becoming a better human being. Let's ultimately look to Christ to redeem all our suffering.
And the way we're going to endure through that, the way John did it, was to continue to find strength in God's joy in him, God's pleasure over him, Jesus' affirmation of him and how he was living his life. I hope you experience his pleasure over you and that it will be strength to help you persevere. And I hope that will turn around to wanting to please him. And as you walk with Christ, to think, okay, how, how can I live to please you? Amen.